turn our Bibles today to First Peter and chapter 1 and looking at the paragraph verses 18 to 22 as we come to consider another description of a Christian today redeemed. Every town in the first century in what is now known as the country of Turkey had a market which dominated the town centre. All kinds of goods could be purchased at the market. It was the Asda or the Tesco of its time. Fruit, vegetables, footwear, clothes, animals, but also humans could be purchased there. The last item surprises us, perhaps shocks us. However, in the first century in the Roman Empire, there was an abundance of slaves. Estimates by historians range from there being a fifth of the 50 million within the Roman Empire to there being two-thirds of the Roman Empire in slavery in the first century. A farmer, therefore, could buy slaves at the market to work in his land. An upper-class merchant could purchase a slave to clean his house. At the same time as they bought their groceries, they could purchase someone as a slave. But some wealthy and compassionate merchants in the first century bought slaves not for labor, but to set them free. And that term, as we're learning today, was redemption. Redemption means to set free by the payment of a price. Indeed, Such was the frequency of redemption in the first century that the emperor had to pass new legislation to manage and govern the process of redemption. Thus, redemption, not familiar to us today unless you're living in that house in Belfast and you're not washing your dishes, was a cultural and regular event familiar to the readers of this first letter. So the apostle, as he communicates the gospel, enters their world and couches the message of the gospel in terminology familiar to these first century readers. And isn't that a lesson for us, a challenge to us in our time to communicate the gospel, drawing on popular events and experiences in our culture? What event could we draw on in witnessing the gospel or in reflecting on the gospel in our own devotions in our time? What is the experience of many in the 21st century that helps us understand and appreciate the gospel today? I suggest it's immigration. In some ways, I am an immigrant here coming to Northern Ireland 30 years ago. And many are immigrants today. A massive change in their life. A change of language and friends. A change of customs and cultures. New privileges, new laws, new rights, new freedoms. What a picture for us to enjoy, to understand and to communicate the gospel 
of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as Peter here uses redemption. But the concept of redemption was not only contemporary for the first century readers, it is rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. And a wide range of ways in which redemption is applied in the Old Testament is available for us. It is used in Exodus chapter 6 and verse 6 of God's promise to Moses that he would redeem the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. God says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. For hundreds of years, The nation of Israel was in slavery to the Egyptian people. They were compelled to build their cities. They made the bricks. They erected the stately buildings. They were suppressed. They were beaten. They were enslaved. They were denied their freedoms. But God promised that he would set them free. That he would redeem them. In Psalm 103 verse 4 We sing and and we read and we pray of the God who redeems our life from the pit. In its fullest sense, of course, it refers to eternal destruction. but, But in its immediate context and sense, it refers to healing from illness and preservation from death. He redeems our life from the pit. Here is a God who redeems us from our illness from our weakness, from our need. A third use in the Old Testament is in Micah 4 verse 2 in relation to redemption from exile. You shall go to Babylon, God says. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. The people will be taken to a foreign land. They would be put to work. They would be humbled and enslaved. But God would set them free. And it's this rich Old Testament usage and background of redemption from Egypt, from illness, from eternal destruction, from exile, which pours into the use of redemption in verse 18. You have been ransomed. You have been redeemed, the apostle says. So here we come to this penultimate description of a Christian in 1 Peter and in chapter 1. We've been noticing the descriptions of a Christian as chosen, as an heir, as joyful, as privileged, as a child of God. The last description which we'll think of this evening is being born again. But here in this sixth description, given in verse 18, you were ransomed. I encourage you to explore this theme of redemption later. There are 36 key verses in the New Testament on this subject of redemption. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, The writer to the Hebrews, Paul, Peter, all mention this theme of redemption. 
So alongside of the theme of salvation in the Bible and of justification in the Bible is this important description of a Christian that we are redeemed. Let's think today of being redeemed from what? Of being redeemed by what? And being redeemed for what? Let's think first of all of redemption from what in verse number 18 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. The writer says here in verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed, redeemed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. The former way of life of these readers is described here in two ways. As an aim, first of all, and secondly, as inherited. Firstly, an aim. The former way of life was futile. That means that life apart from the Lord Jesus is empty, worthless, having no meaningful or lasting purpose. Life without Jesus is just like a breath seen for a moment, but leaving nothing of substance behind. In Titus chapter 3 verse 9, this word is used of Jewish discussions about genealogies filled with speculation and suppositions of who people in those long lists in the Old Testament were. In Nehemiah chapter 12 and verse 7, there is a man there called Salu. And that is the only time he is mentioned, but Jews discussed who this person was, where he lived, what he did. It was pure speculation. It was futile discussion. There was no substance to it. So the non-Christian life Though it is full of work, full of travel, full of study, full of effort, full of talk, full of relationships, has no substance to it. No glory is actively and intentionally brought to God or the Lord Jesus. She doesn't live for the reason that God made her sustains her, places her here on earth. She lives for promotion, money, fame, power, family, but not to obey and glorify God. See the word used in verse 18, futile. This word is used in the first two chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes 13 times. Some translations translate it as the word vanity. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity or futile. And the point being made there and being made here is that though Solomon had wealth and education and buildings, his life was empty without God. But the Lord Jesus delivers us redeems us from that futile life. 
The second thing it says about their non-Christian life was it was inherited from your fathers. Such a futile lifestyle was taught from one generation to the next. Traditions, customs, values, ethics were handed down from one generation to the next generation. And such an experience makes it harder for them and for us to break away from that futile lifestyle. The focus is probably on the religion of the readers, taught to them by their ancestors. They worshipped idols. And each new generation was taught to worship those idols. But it was an empty religion, an empty tradition, empty sacrifices, none of which could atone for their sin or give them power to please God. But Christ had redeemed them from their futile life received from their forefathers. Kate Garraway's husband sadly died, Derek Draper, and his death has dominated the news over this weekend. His many achievements have been mentioned and discussed and related to us. But I and you have longed but fail to hear a mention of him being a believer, of him loving Christ, of him living for God. In the London Times, a full-page obituary was found yesterday, and there's no mention of Draper and God. And I and you are asking, was his life futile? Will my life be futile? These verses reveal the apostolic view of other religions. It is futile. It's not second class, second best. It's not just weaker or less or subordinate to Christianity. It is futile. It is inane. The readers were doubtless devoted, committed, conscientious followers of their past religion, but it was still futile. The most devoted Muslim today, the most devout Hindu today, is living a futile lifestyle. They are totally wasting their time. They're sincere, but sincerely wrong. Attending the mosque, traveling to Mecca, Mecca, keeping Ramadan. It's all futile. The religion contains no element that will gain them any acceptance with God. Only Jesus can save us, redeem us from that futile life. This is important in our thinking as evangelicals, because all evangelicals agree that we need redemption from sin, that you and I and him and her and they and them have sinned against God and deserve his judgment. We need set free from the guilt and power of our sin. We all agree on that, and Jesus sets us free. But not all evangelicals agree that people need set free from other religions. But here it is, ransomed 
from the futile ways. Jenny Lind was a successful Swedish singer in the 19th century. She lived from 1820 to 1887. She was called the slim girl with the marvelous voice. But suddenly, she abandoned the stage at the height of her career. And later she was asked why she had done this. She laid her finger on the Bible and said, when every day my success made me think less of this, what could I do? She grasped that the Christian life far excels the pre-Christian futile life. Redemption. From what? Secondly, in our paragraph, redemption by what? Not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for the sake of you. Redemption, to be set free by the payment of a price. In the Greco-Roman world of the first century, slaves could be redeemed. Brothers could redeem their sisters or other family members. Tribes that were invaded and people taken into exile could buy back those, tri- those members of their tribe which were taken away. Such trades were done with the most valuable metals of the first century, silver and gold. It was the most precious currency available to them. But our redemption is with something more precious, the precious blood of Christ. And so Peter lingers over this ransom price that was paid He mentions blood in verse 19, meaning violent, sacrificial death of Jesus. The taking, the giving of Jesus' life in sacrifice. Death is the divine punishment for our sins, but Jesus, who is spotless, ethically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, verbally, in every conceivable way, He dies that we might not die. He gives his life that we might live. He pays the ransom price to set us free. The precious blood of Jesus. Peter says he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Before the world was created. Before there was any stars or trees or mountains or people, God planned that Jesus would be the Savior, that he would be the only Savior of sinners, that he would offer the ransom price for sinners, that he would be the bridge, the exit, the only way to God. And the evidence that Jesus has paid the ransom price is in verse 21. God has raised him from the dead and given him glory. Jesus has paid with his blood the ransom price. And God is satisfied with that payment. 
And he has raised his son, Jesus, and given him glory. This is not something that we hope for. This is not something that that we think happened. But here in verse number 20, we are assured that this has occurred already. Jesus was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. He has come from heaven. He has paid the ransom price. He has died for sins. Last week we heard of Houthi pirates from Yemen attacking a Danish cargo ship. The Danish ship called for help and helicopters from a a nearby U.S. aircraft carrier came to their aid and, and warned these pirates to desist from their attack on this Danish cargo ship. And they refused to desist and were shot on and put to death, most of them, by these helicopters. And that's what we deserved. We deserve to die for our sins. That judgment meted out upon us. But Jesus dies in our place. His precious blood. He enters in and takes the punishment that we deserve. That he might set us free from the guilt and punishment that our sin deserves. The word precious means to value, to be highly esteemed. And various answers are suggested for precious things in our life. Some suggest our health. Some suggest time is a precious thing in our life. To have time, to give time to others, to receive time from others. Others suggest that respect is a precious thing. To be respected, to be esteemed, to be valued for who we are is a precious thing in our life. But the Christian answers, the blood of Christ is the most precious thing in our life. And preciousness is really found not in what it is, but in what it does. You might have a family Bible that is 200 years old that contains the dates of all the births of your ancestors, the baptisms, the marriages, the deaths of your ancestors. You keep it in a special cupboard. It's important to you. But what does it do in your life? Something is truly precious for what it does in your life. And here is the precious blood of Jesus not merely an historical occasion, a moment in history when he died on the cross, but something which is effective in our lives today. He sets us free from the guilt and power of sin. Then thirdly, redemption for what? Verses 21 and 22. Who through him are believers in God, 
who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So we are set free. From what? By what? But for what? What is it that we are liberated into? What is the new life, the substantial life that Jesus brings us into? What does the Christian life consist of in its essence, substance, and value? It's set out here for us in those three cardinal graces and behaviors of faith and hope and love. We are set free for faith and hope and love. See verse 21, faith, who through him are believers in God, so that your faith in God. The purpose of our redemption is that our trust will be in the redeeming God of heaven. Not a general faith in his existence, but a reliance on him for his redemption and cleansing and forgiveness and daily grace. The God who has planned salvation, the God who has sent his son, the God who has welcomed Jesus, the Savior, back into heaven. We believe in him. We are redeemed so that our faith is in God. Secondly, hope. This is linked to the glory mentioned in the previous phrase. God has given Jesus glory. He is risen. He is exalted. He is seated in glory at God's right hand. And that is the hope that everyone redeemed by Jesus has. That we will follow our Redeemer into death, but then into resurrection and eternal life. And thirdly, love. In verse 22, we are redeemed for unto a sincere brotherly love. The love mentioned here is not love to our enemies or love to God so much, but love to fellow believers. We're not meant to live alone in the Christian life, but to have fellowship with other redeemed people. And how important this element in our Christian life is. We need encouragement. We need challenge. We need help. We need those who will model the Christian life for us, to guide us and to steer us. And as we dwell in fellowship with other believers, as we love them and are loved by them, we live the Christian life and are encouraged to serve God and to grow in it. The recent funeral service of my neighbor, a man in his 50s, it was unforgettable impressionable, edgy. Everyone's talking about it round the town. But at the very start of the service, a card was read by the minister from the widow, thanking everyone for their love and kindness to the family. Brotherly love, Christian love, was so important for them, so powerful, so helpful, so transformational in their loss. Of these three elements of the Christian life, faith and hope and love, 
I think the hardest one is the last one. To love as a Christian should with a sincere love, an earnest love, a love that goes the extra mile, that turns the other cheek, that is patient and kind, is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude, that does not demand its own way, that is not irritable and keeps no record of wrongs, that does not rejoice about injustice but rejoices in the truth, a love that never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, endures through all circumstances. Alongside of faith and hope, the Lord Jesus redeems us to a life of love. Redeemed from what? Redeemed by what? Redeemed for what? So what is our life today then? Is it a futile life being lived without the Lord Jesus as King and Savior in our hearts? Or is it a life of faith, a life of hope, a life of love? Are we redeemed? Or are we still enslaved? And can I ask you if you're not yet a Christian, what have you to lose in becoming a Christian? Surely the answer is nothing. You have everything to gain in becoming a Christian. Freedom from guilt. Freedom from a futile life. You have nothing, absolutely nothing to lose in becoming a Christian. But let me ask you a final question. What have you to lose in not becoming a Christian? Do you have everything to lose in not becoming a Christian? You waste your life. You go to hell after this life. So we beg you. We plead with you. We urge you to repent of your sin, to trust in Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, and to live a life of faith and hope and love.